I'm open back up to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Last week we started getting towards the end of chapter 15. We talked about the Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician, Phoenician Canaanite woman who was from Syria. We talked about her. Yeah, it takes a takes a little bit of deciphering. Mark describes her as a Syrophoenician. Um, Matthew describes her as Canaanite. Okay, Canaanite is some of the ancient inhabitants of the land that go all the way back to Abraham. Syrophoenician is a joint racial and national descriptor there. Phoenician. Canaanite is equal, basically speaking of the same thing. Palestinian would be another name that would match with them today. Syrian, Syro is the first prefix of that. So we talked about her basically giving clear definition as to who this woman was, where she was from, and what her racial description was. Okay, And we talked about how unique that was. He only gives clear definition of people's nationalities in specific times and places obviously to emphasize that point okay he doesn't give everybody's racial identifier he doesn't give everybody's ethnic identifier but he does use those in times when he is trying to show a point when he is trying to show his people in particular the jews when he's trying to teach them a lesson all right they had taken the uniqueness, the exclusiveness, the close relationship that God had established in them as a nation, they had taken that and they had they had taken it way over to the side to be ultimately a racist thing. Okay? So they took being Jews set apart to be a holy people and they took that to mean our race is superior than everybody else's and therefore we don't mix with anybody else. We don't talk to anybody else. We don't touch anybody else. Every other race is inferior to ours. So they had taken it to a step that was ungodly what God had originally intended to be godly. So when he's showing you these things, you'll see in the Old Testament like we talked about last time when God sent Elijah and Elisa to different people who were not Jews. He sent them to one that was a widow who was out of the normal entire and Sidon in the areas that we were talking about last time that was in the Gentile lands. He sent it to a leper who was named Naaman, who was a Syrian. So you see how this constant going back and God sending people, his people, to Gentile people, okay, over and over and over again, we have Jonah, which we always just think about Jonah and the whale. But remember, Jonah went to Nineveh, which was a Gentile land, and the Gentile city repented. Okay, So God throughout the whole Testament, and I, you know, we've been talking about this on Wednesday nights a lot, going back and talking about it's one testament. It's one testimony. Okay, We look at it as the Old Testament and the New Testament, but remember that there's no language in the Bible that describes it that way. There's an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. Okay, But in my opinion, it's one testament. It's one testimony. It testifies to one story, which is the story of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelations. 
So as he's going through this one story, you see over and over again him constantly engaging the Gentiles. They weren't some people that God referred to or regarded as less than human. They were still created in his image just like the Jews were. So we talked about the Canaanite woman that came and begged of Jesus to heal his daughter, her daughter, to remove the devil from her daughter. Jesus gives that dialogue about how he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was only sent to the Jews. It's not right for me to go to the Gentiles before I go to the Jews. And then she, in the true showing of faith and humility and humbleness, gets down and says, yes, but even the dogs, okay? And that's a racial racist term that the Jews used in description of everyone else, of the Gentiles, in particular of Canaanite, okay, Gentiles. Samaritan Gentiles as well were described as dogs, all right? Worthless, stray animals who didn't, not human, okay? Notice that, dogs, not humans, dogs. And she said, yes, but even the dogs, she didn't say, hey, I'm not a dog. I'm not a worth. I'm, I've got self-worth. I've got, I deserve my share. She embodied that term. She embodied that description of her and said, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. Basically saying, I just want just, just a little crumb today. I just want a little scrap on the floor. That's all I need, Jesus. I'm not coming in haughtiness. I'm not coming in pridefulness. I'm not coming in a self-deserving way that I think that I deserve this, that you owe me this. I'm coming like a dog to the dinner table, just going to pick up what's left on the floor. And we contrasted that with the elite Jewish leaders who had been at the first of this chapter, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who we were talking about. They, there is no way they would have degraded themselves to such a level. There's no way in all their spiritual holiness and grandeur they would have ever considered table scraps suitable for such an awesome person as myself. And here this woman in showing a true change of heart, a God-given humility said, I'm, 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 I'm not looking for it. I'm just looking for the crumbs off your table. A Gentile. A Gentile of the Gentiles, you know. It's an amazing testimony. So he spoke to that, and it carries into what he's going to speak of next. We talked about how he had moved from the east coast of Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee. He had moved from that region that was mostly around Bethsaida, which is kind of a Jewish area, down into Decapolis, which is a more Gentile area. They went across the Sea of Galilee. That's when they get in trouble in the middle of the sea, and Jesus walks to them. They land on the western coast at Gennesaret. They do some miracles there. They then move off to the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, which had been the far western border of the Israelite land. Okay, Now we're in the northwest corner of the country, so to speak, borders with Syria and now Turkey. Okay, so they're in this northwest area. They have taught, they've been visiting in Tyre and Sidon, which were two port cities that were major Roman port cities on that of that day. That's where he met this woman who was Syrophoenician, this Canaanite woman. Now he's going to move, and now, as Mark will tell us, he moves back down to Decapolis. So he moves from the northwest corner back across the Sea of Galilee to the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he picks up 
starting in verse 29. And Jesus departed from thence, that would be Tyre and Sidon, departed from thence, came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee, and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame and blind and dumb and maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet and healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the deaf and the mute speak, and the maimed behold, and the lamed walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples and said unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in this wilderness as to fill up so great a multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves have you? And they said, Seven, and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and break them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. And they did eat, I'm sorry, and they that did eat were four thousand men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took a ship and came into the coast of Magdala. Now... If you remember, and if you're having a little bit of deja vu, remember we've already read about one feast time, okay? We've already read about one scenario where Jesus fed a multitude. Here you have this story again, two separate occasions, okay? But it is important for us to kind of grab from this. You see where he went back to. So Mark will tell us in Mark chapter 7, it says, And again, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came into the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. So he went down from the northwest, northwest, sorry, back around the Sea of Galilee to the southeast, and he's back in this area of Decapolis again. Okay? In the land of Decapolis, like we talked about before, this was a ten, Deca, Decapolis, a ten-city area that was predominantly Gentile. We've talked about it before because he went to this area previously. He healed multitudes in this predominantly Gentile land. This is also the area of, of, of Gadaria, or uh, where the wild Gadarean, as we talked about, he healed, who had the legion of demons in him. That's this area, okay? It's where he cast the demon into the pigs. The pigs ran down into the ocean and killed themselves. And everybody said, get out of here. You're scaring the devil out of us, okay? So this is the area he came back to. You just see him constantly making circles through these areas in Galilee before he goes to Jerusalem. So he comes back to this Gentile area. This is where, and the reason it's important is because, remember, we talked about how he just talked to this woman, this Gentile woman, and said, you know, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we spoke about how that phrase did not mean he did not entertain, take care of, or visit Gentile lands because obviously he's done that. Okay, it was merely a promise or a, I guess, an operating system that the Lord had set up that he was going to visit his people first, but he would also visit the Gentiles. Remember, the prophecy said that the Messiah would come and that he would come to the Jews, but he would also be a light 
to the Gentiles. There was this unification that was going to, that was going to occur. That unification did occur in Christ. And that's why when you read in areas like Ephesians, you'll see where he'll say that middle wall of partition, that veil, that thing that separated Jews and Gentiles has been torn to shreds. There is no more Jew Gentile. There's one people, one nation, one body in Jesus Christ. And so that's where he's kind of, he's already hinting at this. He's already showing his Jewish companions, I don't have a racial problem, okay? I don't have this racist thing where I will only go to a certain group of people or that I view other people less than human. He's like, that's not me. That's not God. Your views in that way are erroneous. So here he's going back to the area of Decapolis. If there was any doubt in any of the Jews' minds about how he loved the Gentile people just as much as he loved the Jews, it's here. He goes here multiple times. He just left Tyre and Sidon, which was a predominantly Gentile area, and he walked around all these Jewish lands to get back into another predominantly Gentile area to minister unto them. You say, well, why is that so important? Because these are our people, all right? You know, none of us in here that I know of have any Jewish lineage, all right? We don't fall into that children of Abraham from a natural point of view. So we don't come from this Jewish heritage that we could claim, oh, we are God's people because we were the sons and daughters of Abraham. And even so, remember, the natural Jews that Jesus addressed who did fit that category, a lot of them he castigated and said, Guys, you're, you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. In fact, you're going to get what you don't expect. And that's why there's going to be some wailing and gnashing of teeth. He said, you, you think that because you're of this natural lineage, you have some kind of predisposition, some kind of special thing that's going to get you out of what you are going to get. But I'm telling you that I can raise up of these stones of rocks, children of Abraham. So even though the natural lineage was very important to these people, we find in places like Galatians, you know, God will say, you are a child of Abraham if you follow in the faith of Abraham. That's what makes you a true child of Abraham. So we we have that connection. But us, as far as Gentiles go, we are Gentiles. We are non-Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. We were people who were outside of the Israelite covenant, okay? So it is important, it is kind of interesting for us to grab, and for us, it it teaches us and reteaches us, reaffirms in us God's, God's testimony throughout all of His Word that said, I have a people everywhere. I have a people everywhere. There is no one group of people that I prefer above another. And I know that's really hard for us to grab in our society because there were people who taught that America was the new Jerusalem. That somehow God had done this special thing with us that he had given us. We were just this new, you know, Jewish type nation that God had established. It's like, look, I got to break it to you. That was not ever the case. God has had equally a people everywhere, and there's never been anybody that's more predominant over another. God didn't say, hey, I like white Westerners today. I think I'm going to do more for them than anybody else. No, it's always been his people everywhere. Remember that the first people who made up the church were predominantly Jewish, but that quickly changed. 
I mean, one of the greatest examples of that is the Ethiopian who came from Candace out of Ethiopia and came and received the word of God by Philip on the road and went back and started the church in Africa. There was a church there before there was a church here. The African church is some of the oldest churches there there are in existence. So God has never been in this business of like, oh, I'm just going to give my church to white Westerners or just Africans. Or maybe I'm going to move over and just put my church in the Chinese. No, it's been his church is one body in all nations. We're everywhere. We talked about this when we were speaking of the kingdom of God. It was this tree that was inhabited by every manner of birds okay, from all over. And we talked about how the, the, the kingdom grew out. It became an inhabitant for all nations. So here again, he's going back to these Gentile lands going, look, guys, understand, I have a people everywhere. I will minister and care for those people everywhere. So here he comes back and he heals these multitude that were lame and that were blind and, and again, you know, you, you think that after so many chapters of him doing this at some point in time, if it was like our, I guess you'd say, if it was us writing this book, okay, you would have somebody start calling some of this stuff out. Okay, they'd say, oh, that's repetitive. Here you go again. You're healing blind, long, uh, blind uh, maimed people and they can't talk. Say, yeah, we get it. Okay, you've done that 15,000 other times. Let's, get, let's skip to the point, Jesus, okay? But I want you to stop for a second and I want you to think about these natural ailments that Jesus healed in all of these people over and over and over and over again. Say, well, why is that important? Why is it important that he mentions again that he healed someone who was blind and lame and mute and couldn't speak and couldn't hear? Why is it important that he says that he did it again? Because here's the thing, if you were just using these healings, these miraculous things that he does, if they were only to testify to his messianic character, if they were only to testify that he was the son of God, then someone writing a thesis paper on this to say these are the reasons why Jesus was the son of God and had power like God, you wouldn't have to mention it this many times. All you need is one time, okay? All you need is one occurrence to go, okay, here's the box of requirements to be the Messiah, all right? You got to heal blind people. You got to heal lame people. You got to heal deaf people. You got to heal people who can't speak, okay? And you got to cleanse lepers, all right? All I need is one story, one time, one occurrence to check that box and go, okay, he did that, all right? Same thing with prophecies about where he was going to come and what he was going to do. You go back to Micah or you go back to Isaiah and you go, okay, was he born in, Be- in Bethlehem? Yes. Did he ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Yes. Okay. Check the box. He did it. Now I can come over here and go, well, based on the facts, based on what Jesus did, I've got this occurrence, this occurrence, this occurrence, this occurrence that he did that. And therefore, all the check boxes match up. There you go. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. You wouldn't need five different occasions for him to heal people and it be recorded that he healed these people if you're just doing it off of scientific or theological evidence for the case. Why does it put in here this many times? 
Because Jesus consistently will go forward showing his compassion. He'll consistently go forward showing his compassion. These stories are in here over and over and over and over and over and over again to show that Jesus is compassionate over and over and over and over and over and over again. Amen? That he will constantly, this is just who he is. He wasn't just doing these things to check a checkbox. He was doing these things because he is a loving, compassionate Savior. And so when he comes on the scene of another area and he goes and he sits down on a mountain thinking, okay, another time I've, I've, I've walked or traveled from Tyre and Sidon in the northwest. I've traveled 100 miles down over here to Decapolis and I just want to sit down on a mountain and here you go throwing all these multitudes at me again of sick and lame people. And at some point in our natural mind, we would go, man, can I not just catch a break? Can a brother not catch a break? But Jesus saw the multitudes and one more time said, no, this is this is why I am here. He tells his disciples at one point, he says, right now, the day, the light is with you work while the day is here, because it's going to come that the daylight is going to go away. The night will come when no man can work right now. I'm here. This is why I'm here. I'm not just here to check boxes off so that I can get to the cross and ultimately do what I've been planning from the foundation of the world. All of this was planned, okay? Jesus' whole purpose here from the day he was born to the day he died on the cross and the day he was resurrected, all of that was part of this. Jesus didn't come down at birth and go, well, I'll see what happens for 33 years and then we'll get up to the cross. No, every bit of this was for a purpose. He came to do this for a purpose. He healed all these people on purpose because it's who he was, is who he ever will be. He has a compassion on the multitudes. And that's what's what's really important for us to grab from that. Because you say, okay, that's great. That's what he did then. What's he doing now? Well, what this will kind of hopefully drill home for you and me is that as many times as we go to him in our deafness, in our blindness, in our maimedness, in our broken downness, and all these things, he's still the compassionate Savior that will heal us again and again and again and again and again. There's no end to it. We should have gotten more amens on that, I think. Do you believe this morning that he's a compassionate Savior? Do you believe that you are broken? Do you believe that you are broken more than once? Okay, we look at it as like a one and done deal. Yes, he paid for our sins on the cross, but that did not fix all of our problems at that point. He still said, you're going to be walking with me through your whole life. You're going to find tribulations in your life, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world and I'm going with you and I'm going to be right there. The next time you fall and you break a leg, I'll heal you. The next time you get blind to your sins, blind to your problems, you start letting pride or doubt or whatever it is creep into your life and obscure your view of the cross. He says, I will be there to remove your blindness. He says, like a little child that I have to discipline, sometimes I'm going to spank out of you whatever your error is. But guess what? I do it because I love you and it's going to yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness. But I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. This is who I am. 
I am compassionate in this way. So I think it's just, it's an amazing testimony. We can't miss these little things here that we just kind of breeze through and go, okay, it's another place and another healing. And here we go again. He healed the blind. We know that. We sing amazing grace, just like Peter did. You know, we sing amazing grace. We know that he heals. I was blind, but now I see. In fact, speaking of, I know I said that kind of sarcastically about amazing grace, but if you think about the story of that song, it was another, it was another healing of blindness. You say, well, what was the blindness that he was writing about? Well, the blindness that he was writing about was not a spiritual blindness in the sense of, oh, well, I was a dead sinner and now I'm a born again child of God. I was blind. His blindness that he was specifically referring to was the slave trade that he was involved in. And when God got a hold of him and broke his heart and changed him into a new man, what he saw was the evils and the horrors of trafficking human beings. That's where he was testifying to, I was blind, but now I see. He wasn't saying I was blind to the fact that I'm a sinner in the sense of I'm, I'm, I'm unclean. I have total depravity and now God saved me by election. and pre- he, That's not what his blindness was. He was specific when he was describing his blindness. I was blind to the fact that through my sinful, wicked heart, I thought it was okay to steal people and sell them as property. That ties right back into what we were talking about with the dehumanization. You're a Canaanite dog. Well, dogs have no rights. Dogs have no, they're just property. If they die, they die. I can sell them. I can leave them on the side of the road. I can do whatever I want to with them. I was blind, but now I see. Here, he was speaking to his blindness, to the evils of what he was doing. Here, Christ is healing a physical blindness that was here. He was healing a physical lameness that was here. And that still goes on today. Christ is still Christ still heals people. Healings were part of the gifts that he gave to the church. He still heals people in that way. We don't we don't doubt hopefully this morning that he still heals people in a physical way, okay? That's still going on. That's not crazy, you know, crazy Pentecostal, you know, stuff. That's just Bible, okay? Now we the problem with us is, is that we think it's it's weird mumbo jumbo and the Bible describes it as an everyday occurrence. Okay, you know the First Corinthians and in, in Second Corinthians, the Corinthian church describes it as an everyday occurrence. In fact, Paul will tell the church that you need to be praying for prophecy and you need to be praying for these things. These gifts were given to the church for its edification. So we still believe that he heals in a physical way. But he also is most definitely healing us and taking care of us and breaking us and rebuilding us every single day in our spiritual failures. And we've described before how the spiritual problems, okay, because we'll say, oh, well, the physical is more manifest. Well, let me just tell you, the physical problems sometimes have a spiritual origin. We talked about that before. You can have a spiritual mental problem like depression that bears itself out in physical ways. People who will have depression will have will be tired and will be achy and will have problems. There's physical side effects to spiritual problems. So they go hand in hand. Jesus healing a lame man is no different than him hearing a spiritually lame man. It's all it's all tied together. 
But I do want us to grab that and understand that. that and, and see the flow of this story. He just left Tyre and Sidon where he heals this Gentile woman who showed more faith than any of the people who'd been running with him so far. And then he moves down to Decapolis and more broken, lame Gentiles come to him. He heals them too. He doesn't look at them and say, hey, it's not right for y'all to come ask for help. It's not right for y'all. Y'all are dogs. Y'all don't need, you, you're supposed to be eating table scraps. You're not supposed to be. Don't come up here and ask for anything. Jesus says, no, come on. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an amazing story. Don't let the, the little things of the Gospels just, just pass by. Stop and think on them. That's what meditating on the Scriptures is all about. Stop and take the five verses that we've read and think about them and think about the implications and what Jesus is trying to tell us here. He goes on to say in verse 32 that as he was sitting on the mountain and as everybody had been with him three days and there hadn't been any food, all right? We've talked about this before. You know, this isn't like there was an Arby's right down the road, okay? Or now there might have been a Chick-fil-A because Jesus was on the scene. So that might have been the case. But we don't, there's nothing just right around readily accessible. They're in a mountain place. They're in a desert place, a wilderness, Okay. And all these people have been hanging out with Jesus for three days and they haven't had any food to eat. Now look, we're going to say it like this, but there's some of us who couldn't go three minutes without eating food. And it would distract us from everything, including Jesus, okay? These people have been sitting at Jesus' feet for three solid days not wanting to leave because it's Jesus, okay? And he says, I have compassion. There's that word again on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint. Same thing happened when the multitudes came in chapter 14. Chapter 14, when he heals the other group, it says that Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick and then he fed them. Here we have it again. I'm healing these people and now I'm going to feed them because I'm moved with compassion. We talked last time about how this, in a very beautiful way, exemplifies... Christ is both our spiritual sustainer as well as our natural sustainer. Remember that when we think about it, a lot of times we, unfortunately, we kind of segregate these two things. We say, oh, well, Jesus and everything Jesus does, that's all spiritual. So he's my salvation spiritually. He delivers me spiritually. He feeds me spiritually. But then we go over here and say, but yeah, I got to work my 40 hours in a week and I got to do all this because I've got to get my natural, my natural, my natural. Okay. And what Jesus blends in both of these occasions is he says, guys, I am the provider of both. Okay. You can't separate me from either one because... I created everything, I sustain everything, and I have blessed you in everything, spiritual and natural. That's why, as he talked about early on in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I feed birds, okay? Birds don't make their own food. You say, oh, but by nature and by science and all this stuff and evolution, they get down there and that's how they catch worms and they eat them and feed them and all this stuff. And God's going, yeah, and, and you know what? You know who's doing all that? Me, okay? 
You know who made the worm? I did. You know who makes sure the bird gets the worm? I do. You know that when a bird falls out of a nest and dies, I know about it. I've numbered every hair on your head. Every natural aspect of this is all based in and around me. I am not absent from any molecule of it. So here when they get out in wilderness and they start talking about, well, where are we going to get some Arby's? Where are we going to get some food? There's nothing out here. Just like last time we talked about how in Corinthians, in the Corinthian letter, it is described, Jesus as described as that spiritual rock that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness and provided them water. He was described as the manna from heaven. He was described as the quail that was given to them in the wilderness. All of these natural sustaining things. Paul will come back in the Corinthian letter and say, that was all Jesus. One testimony, okay? It wasn't that Jesus wasn't, was absent from the Old Testament. He didn't come on scene to the New Testament. No, it's one testimony. Jesus was that rock. Jesus was that bread. Jesus was that quail. Jesus is your natural food and your spiritual food. Jesus is all in all and through all. So here he comes again and there are now, as you look at it, and you break these two scenes out. Now, the reason that they think or, you know, it's it's another story of a feeding, okay? There's two of these in here. These are two separate ones, okay? Again, you would go, okay, why are we mentioning this again? You've already done this. We know you can do this. And we get the implications from it. Hey, you, you know, you're feeding multitudes and, you know, all that. They... Most commentators, most people, when you read about this, because this is in the area of Decapolis, it's kind of, they, they think this is a, a, a tying in of both the Jews and the Gentiles. The previous one would have been mostly with predominant Jews in the area he was in. This one's in predominant Gentiles. He's doing the feeding for both. It's a testimony that he feeds and sustains both. It's a testimony that he is in all, that there are no separations. Even though there's still that barrier in place, Jesus is going, guys, I'm just telling you, you might as well get comfortable eating with the Gentiles because I'm about to blow the lid off on this whole thing, okay? And this is something that will come back and haunt Peter later because Peter will go in and he won't eat with the Gentiles. Well, he'll eat with the Gentiles as long as there's no Jews around. Remember, that was back when Paul calls him out in Galatians and said, I had to rebuke Peter. Why? Because Peter was sitting with Gentiles, eating with Gentiles, was okay with that until Jews came around. And then he hopped up and ran over there like, oh, guys, I was nowhere near those filthy Gentiles. And Paul had to come on the scene and go, Peter, man, there's no such thing anymore. Quit identifying yourself in the case of Jew and Gentile. You are one people under Christ. So here he has them sitting down with him. This is another case, too. If you think about it, you've heard people say before, you know, well, I, I'm always astounded at people who don't like to sing in church and say you're going to hate heaven. All right. Because you're going to be singing all the time. So hope you, you might as well get practice for it, because if you don't like it down here, you're going to be miserable up there. All right. It's a little bit facetious, but it's also a little bit practical. We need to go ahead and get on the ball. We're going to be doing it for eternity. You might as well go ahead and warm those vocal cords up for the rest of eternity. OK, the same thing goes, though, in every other aspect of eternity. People down here that used to say, well, there's no way that I'm going to go to church with an African-American person. They have to be separated from us. Say, so, well, you really are going to hate heaven. 
Well, I don't. I just this is just for me, my people, my group. Well, you're going to hate heaven because that ain't how heaven is. And I just break it to you that ha- that's not how the church has ever been. Okay. You go to the Corinthian church, you had every group of different racials and ethnicities of people all mixed together in that place. Corinth was a large metropolitan area. If you go down to Birmingham, if you go to Atlanta, if you go to Los Angeles, you can go to major metropolitan areas. There is a large diversity of people. And the beautiful thing about the Corinthian church, even with all their busted up and jacked upness, they were all together and they were all together in the name of Christ. But for some reason, in some crazy, ungodly, unholy, wicked way, we came together in this nation and decided, no, 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 it's all whites in one and all African-Americans in another. And then you have a Korean church and then you have a Chinese church and we split everybody apart and we gave everybody a different flavor of church so we could split them apart and say, yeah, so all of our little people can be together and feel more comfortable. And that's never how the church has been. Here in this scenario, you have them eating in a predominantly Gentile area and you've got a bunch of Jews sitting down here and eating with a bunch of Gentiles. And Jesus is going, you better get ready because this is how it's supposed to be. Get over whatever your goofy, wicked predispositions are, your racial issues are. Get over them because that's not how my church operates. Again, we've been going through this to go, why are we trying to reiterate these things? Why are we trying to harp on these things over and over and over and over again? Because we are supposed to be following what Christ taught us to do. And for some reason and somehow in the last 200 years just that I'm focusing on, we have inserted all of these crazy non-Christ-oriented things into our worship. Into our daily lives as Christians. To where like Fox and Friends takes precedence over the gospel. Okay. Where doing whatever the the community or whatever the the social norm is. And we'd say, oh, well, we've never never really given in to social norms and stuff. Go back to it. We used to split the church up and say no African Americans could be in here with us. We had laws on the books that said that. You say, oh, we've never given in to social pressures. We've been the, that's a social pressure. That was a traditional social pressure that is ungodly and out of line with the Bible. Okay. So why do we harp on these things? Because we can't let that be the case for us. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, we have to do what Christ told us to do. We have to do his church the way Christ told us to do. There's something else interesting about this story, though. Notice that in this story, there's 4,000 people. In the previous story, there was 5,000 people. Now, it says excluding women and children, which means there was probably more. So they they will talk about 5,000 men. They didn't roam around alone, usually. You had women and children with them. 4,000 men, they didn't roam around alone. You got women and children with them. There could be four, five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people here. Who knows? But we go off just the, the, the bare numbers that they give us. 5,000 in the original, 4,000 in this one. That's less people, right? 1,000 less people to feed. Right? Smaller number of people. You also notice that in the first feeding, he had five loaves of bread and two fishes. Is it fishes or fish? Fish? Fishes? Two fishes. Okay? And I don't know if they were 
you know, grandpa fish or baby fish or what they were, but they were two fishes. Okay. Now, in this feeding of 4,000, you had seven loaves and a few fishes. Well, if any of y'all ever know how you'd say, you know, I got a couple and a few. All right. A couple would be two. A few can be three or more. All right. So here you get the idea there was more fish in this. There's more loaves in this. There's less people in this. You have more natural supplies and less mouths to feed. In the original, you had 5,000. You only had five loaves and two fishes. Okay? And Jesus, as, as we learned like when he's talking in John and he's talking in Mark about this, Jesus actually talked to Philip while he was there. And it says he was testing Philip. Going, hey, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? How are we going to do all this? And Philip's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe we need to go back to town and buy some more and all this stuff. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Just sit, have everybody sit down. And let me let me show you what we're going to do here. Fast forward. Now they're back in the same situation. Except this time you've got less people. You've got more bread. You've got more fish. You would think that the disciples who had just seen this happen a few weeks or whatever ago with less or with more supply or less supplies, more people, Jesus fed all those. You would think they would roll up here on the scene. And when Jesus said, here we go, I want to feed all this multitude, they wouldn't go, well, how are we going to do that? They'd go, oh, man, Jesus, we got two more loaves of bread than we had last time. We got a thousand less people. You got this, man. Do your thing. Let's go. Let's eat. You've got more fish, Jesus. We're going to be able to have even more. Maybe we're going to take up 50 baskets this time. Because, man, you've got more to work with here than you did last time. And you've got less people. In a supply and demand situation, we're in a pretty good spot here with Jesus. But the disciples still doubt his ability to fix this problem. His disciples in verse 33 said to him, where can we go? Where should we have so much bread in the wilderness and to fill this great a multitude? How are we going to get this much bread out here to fill all these people, Jesus? Now, look, I know that we don't like to beat people up. Okay. We don't like to look at people and say, I know we're not going to say that in this situation we would do something different because I, I would never be as bold as to say that. I would just like to think just a little bit that if I had just seen him do this with less and for more people, that I would at least go, I mean, there's a possibility he can do it. I mean, I'm not sure, Jesus, but can you do that thing again? Because what you did last time was cray-cray. Can you do it again? Can you do it again? There's less people. We've got more stuff. It should actually be easier for you, Jesus. You won't have to multiply it as much. I mean, you're going to start getting into math of like dividing five and 5,000. And I guess that means everyone gets like a thousandth of a piece of bread or whatever it is. Okay, don't get into math with me. All right. But you have less, less people to feed, and you've got more natural supplies, and the disciples still go, Lord, where are we going to find more bread? You just got to imagine Jesus going, oh, come on, come on, 
It was a rhetorical question, guys. Do you not remember what I did a few weeks ago? Where is your faith? This coming off the heels of this Canaanite non-Jewish woman who's crawling on the ground saying, Jesus, I'll eat the scraps from your table, but I know you can heal my daughter. This coming off of multitudes of Gentiles who had come to Jesus on a mountain and said, heal my broken leg, heal my broken back, heal my blindness, heal my mouth, heal my ears, heal all these things. And none of them said, Jesus, I don't know where you're going to find the scalpel. Jesus, I don't know where you're going to find the casting material. Jesus, I don't know where you're going to find the medicine for me. Jesus, I don't know if you can do this. Every one of them came up to him fully expecting and knowing without a shadow of a doubt that he could heal him. Now, the thing is, is that, and I know it's not written in here, but you can just make the assumption, all right, a pretty sound assumption. These multitudes of people, these 4,000 plus people, it wasn't like these were all born again children of God who had faith intrinsically given to them that can believe Jesus, okay? Some of these people were just coming out because they've heard of what he's done before. But even just by hearsay, they come out. Even just hearing other people talk about it, they came out. And trusted in Jesus. They didn't question him. The disciples are like, Jesus, I know you've just healed all these 4,000 plus. I know you removed the devil, that long distance exorcism you did with that woman. I know you've done countless times before the miraculous and the powerful but where are we going to find the bread it's a lack of faith in what jesus can do even when he has more natural stuff to work with you know sometimes we get in that same situation now look, anytime we have a problem, there is no problem where there is a lack of supplies to the point that Jesus says, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to work with. I'm sorry, I can't fix this problem. I'm sorry, there's not enough natural stuff here for me to be able to create or help or do whatever you need in this point. There's no scenario that Jesus looks at and goes, I'm sorry, I would, but I can't. In fact, the testimony of the believer when he came to Christ was the leper that needed to be healed came to Christ and said, Lord, I know you can if you just would. And he says, oh, I, I, I would, I would be whole. So there's no natural situation. There's no problem we face. There's no issue we face that Jesus ever comes up to and goes, that's a tough one. Where are we going to find the supplies to fix this? But in both these situations, the first, kind of the first feeding, the second feeding, the woman's daughter being healed from her devil, okay, that was oppressing her, all of these things that have occurred in this chapter and the, in the previous chapters, they testify to Jesus's power authority as creator God of the entire universe. 
I mean, the natural things like this, when he turns bread into, you know, the like never ending buffet. All right. When he can turn like, you know, the 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 never ending pasta and salad bowl from Olive Garden out here in the wilderness. Okay, when he can do that out of just five or seven loaves of bread, when he's feeding seven, five and four thousand people off of this, when he's doing those kind of things, he is showing in a very subtle, small way. I own the universe, okay? I can replicate molecules. I can change. I can do what I can make you either satisfied with one morsel of bread, one, you know, one thousandth piece of bread or whatever it is. I can even either satisfy you with that or I can by the creative authority and power that I have, I can make that be more than just a thousandth. John 1 Verse 3 will say, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is going, this bread right here, I made this. It's mine. The molecules in it are mine. I hold them together so they could actually be bread. I made you. I made your stomachs. I made everything in this world. There is nothing that's outside of my power. So then we fall back onto this. We fall back onto this big, big question. Do we doubt the power of Christ? Do we doubt his consistency? Do we doubt his ability? Do we doubt the fact that he is the creator God of the universe? I mean, think about what we have read so far. Those three, I guess you could say the the three examples of profound faith that we've already read about. Number one, the Roman centurion out of Matthew chapter eight. Remember, the Roman centurion sends his servant to Jesus and says, I need you to heal my servant because he is sick. And Jesus says, "Okay, show me the way. And the centurion says, no, 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 I'm not worthy. Number one, humility, mark of the faith. Okay, humility. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But I know just like me, naturally, a centurion, I'm over legions. I can command my legions to do things and this happens. He says, I know that just by my natural power, I can do that. So I know by you being the God of the universe in your spiritual power, your creative power, you can speak. And through the creation power, you can heal my servant, even though you are not able to touch him or see him. It's not like you had some kind of magic oil or some kind of ointment. Just you, he's testifying to the creative power of Christ. And he's a Roman unbelieving centurion. Okay. And I say unbeliever in the sense of he is a non-Jewish heritage unbeliever. Okay. He's a believer. All right. Cause he's born again and he has faith by God to even know that Jesus could even do that. Okay. But he speaks in that way and says, I know that you can do this. And Jesus said, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Nobody believes me for who I am. And nobody believes me that I am God, the creator of the universe, who can fix any situation, no matter where it is or how it is or what it is. He says, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. So that was number one. Number two is the woman with the issue of blood that we talked about last time. The woman with the issue of blood who, again, had the issue for 12 years. And remember when we talked about this in Leviticus, she was ostracized, she was outcast, she would have to walk around saying she's unclean because she was unclean until it stopped. 
Until that issue stopped and then she had seven days and she had the purification rituals and all this stuff, she couldn't come around. She couldn't be touched. Nobody could touch even the chair that she sat on. She couldn't go to the temple. I mean, none of this stuff could happen. Twelve years she's been like that. But when she sees Jesus, she says, there's the man who can fix me. So how do you know that? Did you read his resume? How did you know he could do that? And she said, and I know that I don't even need to, again, I don't even need him to touch me. If I can just grab the hem off of his robe, I'll be healed. So she crawls on that nasty, first century, disgusting ground, okay? Now look, y'all need to come to out of the country to places that don't have paved roads. You think about like dirt trails back here and you think that's, no, 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 no. I'm talking about main thoroughfare where every animal traveled, okay? Crawling in that nasty dirt just to kind of reach through some legs and grab the hem of his garment. And he said, daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And lastly, we have this Canaanite woman we just learned about who's willing to crawl on the ground to Jesus and say, I'll just eat whatever falls off your table if you will just heal my daughter. You have these three profound examples of faith. You say, oh yeah, they were, they were, they were the exemption. They were the abnormality. They were the, no, they were just showing what real faith looked like, Okay. And they were the people you would not expect to have real faith. You thought it would come through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and training and religious knowledge. And these people had none of that. But they had a desperation that drove them to Christ. They had a desperation that drove them to Christ. And they didn't doubt they didn't question. They didn't that desperation that drove them to Christ. They didn't then on the other end of it going, yeah, but can he actually do it? I know I'm in a bad spot, but can he actually do it? And there was no doubt in any one of these people's minds. They ran to him and said, I know he can do it if I can just get to him. It's profound faith. So we need to remember too that faith as as we see this played out in these examples, faith is the substance of things hoped for. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Meaning we know by faith that God can do something out of absolute nothing. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now that word, substance, because we think of it as like substance, like something that is substantial, something you can hold, feel, grasp, and it is in that way. Faith to us is our ability to hold on, to touch, and tangibly know and feel the things that are spiritual of God, but that's not what the word Means The word substance means confidence, assurance. But now faith is the confidence of things hoped for. Faith is the confidence we have in the things that we hope for. 
Faith is the confidence we have in Christ's ability. Faith gives us confidence that Christ can do what we know He can do. So do we have the confidence in Christ today with whatever we're facing? Do we have the faith that has been given by God, by which we please Him, that gives us confidence? Do we have confidence that He can take care of business? Do we have confidence in God's mighty power? Do we have confidence in God's providence, that He moves and works in our lives every day? Do we have confidence in that? Do we have confidence in God's promise that He can work everything out? Again, you think about you you think about the situations where things don't go right and we go, "Well, what are you doing, God? Do we have confidence that God can take what we think is a bad situation and make it into a great situation?" Amen. And do we have the confidence that whether he has a little or he has a lot, he can work all things out of absolute nothing. He spoke the world into existence when there was nothing. You say, well, Lord, we don't have as many loaves as we needed. We didn't have as much natural stuff as we needed. Lord, do you have enough equipment to work with? Do we have confidence that God can work everything out with absolutely nothing because he is God? So let us have confidence this week in him. Have confidence in what he is able, more than able to do. Have confidence that whatever we go through, whatever we face, whatever we're seeing this week. Think about the 23rd Psalm where he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with me. We may not know where he's leading us to. We may not be able to see the road and see the corner, see the bend, see which direction we're going. We may not be able to see all these things, but we have confidence that he is leading us. And we have confidence that wherever he leads us to, whatever he leads us through, whatever we face on the way, we have confidence that he is my shepherd. He is taking care of me. He can lead me through the valley of the shadow of death and I will not fear. Why? Because I have confidence that he is with me and that his rod and his staff will comfort me. So I hope this week we can have confidence in Christ, confidence in his ability through the faith that we know he has given us, that we trust in him. We have confidence in him. We look to him and we glorify him as we go through this world. May God bless us to do these things.